This episode is brought to you by Fallen Rook Publishing. Whether you're new to HEMA or you've been around the block a few times, Fallen Rook Publishing is a fantastic place to get your fencing manuals, instructional works, and interpretations of the source material. I, for one, have a battered and dog-eared copy of the German Longsword Study Guide, which I return to as my first stop for when I start looking into a particular technique. Visit fallenrookpublishing.co.uk or keithfarrell.net. Hey everybody and welcome to this very special episode of Blades for Days where we're going to be talking about swords and sword fighting and the future of HEMA, armor and YouTube fame. I'm your host Jordan and joining me today is the legendary Matt Easton. So how are you doing? Yeah, not bad. I'm just messing around with the lighting because I look really weird colour and uh, I look very pink. I'm not actually that. I think I think it's fine. I mean, um, this will be going out. Yeah, that's a bit better. Yeah, I mean, this will all be uh, audio for the main part. Although I might put this one on uh, YouTube. Um, I actually started using like charcoal toothpaste because we've got a really yellow light in here, and it makes <laughs> my teeth look like I'm a pirate. So. <laughs> Um, so I just got really self-conscious after a while. I was like, oh, God, no. Yeah. By coincidence, I had my teeth cleaned yesterday at the dentist, so that's what I was having done. So. Right, okay. I was talking to, um, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine, and uh, coincidentally, he was going to the dentist as well, and he was having, like, stitches in his gums and all sorts of stuff Ooh. like that. Yeah, and I've never had to have anything like that done. Wisdom Tooth had to, you know, had to have um, that pulled. And um, the thing is, I read a couple of books, like, a few years ago. I got them, um, I think it was when I was in Prague, and they were books on, like, torture. And one of the things that I was reading about was, you know, dental torture. And since I've read it, whenever anybody talks about teeth, things like that. I just can't, I can't listen to it. So yeah, <laughs> just completely check out. Um, so yeah. How have you been anyway? Yeah, pretty good. Um, you know, struggling along, juggling the, um, uh, the, you know, ch children stuff and um, all the other stuff, you know, work and house and everything else. It's been exhausting to be honest. So we're listening to the um, updates every day from, uh, Boris and the rest and um, they're now saying that they reckon schools might go back in March so at least we've got a date to kind of look towards potential liberation it's <laughs> 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 not a lockdown we mind so much it's just it's very difficult to get stuff done when you've got you know homeschooling going on and then you know luckily nurseries are still open so but anyway it's um yeah it's been it's been tough and obviously not same for you guys not having training for so long um it's funny, I wouldn't have thought it, but it actually has quite a big knock on knock on, on my channel as well, because in terms of, um, you know, testing out new gear, reviewing stuff, but also demonstrating stuff as well. I, I, you know, I'm not, I can't, you know, physically go and do that stuff. So, um, yeah, it'll be good. It'll be good when the club, when the club's reopened again. Um, yeah. And we can actually start. Back to, I'm a little bit scared to be honest though what my physical condition is going to be like by then so and frankly I mean I think a lot of people will drift away and probably won't ever come back but I think it's a long enough period of time that you know um yeah I actually 
one of the things that I've been speaking to a lot of other instructors about most recently is motivation. And, you know, some folks haven't picked up a sword in months, you know, four, five, six months. And I, I think that, yeah, you're right. There was an article I was reading by Keith Farrell as well. And he was basically, you know, you could tell that there was kind of an underlying concern that you've got all these HEMA instructors who are going to sort of like take all their knowledge, not take it away. You know, that sounds like something spiteful, but like as in, they're, you know, they're going to leave the HEMA scene and not come back. And, and with them goes yeah. this knowledge. And uh, it, yeah. it it is really tough. I actually I think that your channel uh, and the YouTube videos that you're that you're putting out, though, like for for me, um, I think that they're a really important link for a lot of people to the HEMA world because um, you, you're going to get people, and I have this in, in uh, the academy, like my students are very close knit. Um, so, you know, we have like film night every Wednesday and, you know, I'm doing online classes for them as much as possible. Um, but even within uh, close knit, communities like that you're going to get people who are on the fringes who are you know maybe uh, quite shy or they you know they've joined purely because they want to do hemo they're not really you know they're not really interested in the same sort of things or whatever and i think that for those people who are out in the sticks maybe um channels like yours and um you know you've got the ahf as well and things like that i think that they're a really important link to that world um and the enthusiasm that you bring in your channels i think that that's that's great as well um because that hasn't dropped off and i think that's great yeah i think with everything as well there's opportunities and you know this whole period of time has given opportunities for us to step outside of our normal rhythm and patterns and look at different ways of doing things and you know um dave rawlings for example is teaching i think pretty much every day of the week online now and I've noticed a couple of other instructors have started offering classes online. And frankly, you know, why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, it kind of it's when you think about the technology involved, it's not, you know, it's not rocket science. And it's it's kind of surprising that people haven't done that previously. Literally for years, uh, well, since I've been running my channel, um, people have asked me about running online learning courses or, you know, obviously in the old days it was DVDs and stuff like that. But, but now just kind of like, you know, downloadable content or whatever. And, and I've always shied away from it for several reasons, because I think partly there's the risk it can undermine the physical classes. Uh, partly it just takes time and resources to, to, to do, to film. Um, and it feels a bit like, it's a bit like writing a book or making a DVD. It feels a bit like sort of turning what you teach into a fixed thing, whereas certainly the way I teach, it's like moving the whole time, fluctuating and, you know, tweaking this and tweaking that. So it feels a bit like committing you and what you what you teach and how you teach and your interpretations as well down to a fixed form which i'm reluctant to do certainly with the earlier i think i'd be happy to do that with the victorian material but when it comes to fiore for example i think we have to be a little bit more flexible um with our interpretations because there's a relatively large number of unknowns yeah. um and it's difficult to say what's right and what's wrong in many cases um but yeah so but yeah there's opportunity basically and i mean it has um definitely i think I, I i'm starting to think about running some type of online learning thing and also frankly i've always thought about well you know i i drive for um an hour and a half to run the london club now and before long before the pandemic was a thing 
we'd started talking about the possibility of me not going every week and some of the senior instructors taking over at the London Club. Maybe one week out of four or, you know, maybe even in the future, half of the time. Um, and thinking more about that, it kind of with the online learning stuff, it kind of I, I'm starting to think of new ways that we could run the club, basically, um, that potentially could have a worldwide you know um some contact as it were and also i think it kind of breaks down some of the barriers because whereas i think most people for most of history is i'm in this club i go to this club that's the club near me or that's the club that is near me that i prefer um and if you're like some people from my club and some people from dave's club train at both and um i think you know if, if lots of people are offering online content then there's no reason why someone can't train with five different clubs five nights of the week um, and that in a way kind of makes for a more uh, unified and sort of um, interconnected scene than we got with traditional martial arts schools in the past so it's interesting times this. <laughs> yeah I think so because I was talking to um, a friend of mine and uh, he's a friend and uh, my former instructor and one of the things that he uh, teaches is Brazilian jiu-jitsu and you know i was talking to him about like online classes and writing books and things like that because this guy knows the the subject matter inside now and he's like nah you know i prefer the class scene like i don't think you can learn brazilian jiu-jitsu online i don't think you can do it through a video and then obviously since the pandemic his perspective has shifted shifted a little bit and i think that you know necessity is the mother of invention so you know what he's what he's doing is you know kind of whereas before he sort of dismissed it because it wasn't necessary now he's thinking about ways in which he can train certain things um online and i think that yeah um reaching that wider audience is um i think that's a like a great thing to be able to do. And again, it's that link, isn't it, to the HEMA community. I tried making videos myself, um, but unfortunately the day that I did it, I'd, I did that thing that I tell my students off for doing, which is I came out of lockdown and I went to the gym and I was like, that's how much I was benching before lockdown. That's how much I'll bench now. So I started like really hitting the gym heavy and I slightly dislocated a rib um, from like just overtraining. Uh, yeah. So in this, I was watching back editing these videos to put them online and I'm looking at it and my neck is so far forward because I was just so uncomfortable and I can sort of <laughs> tell because I start off and I'm, you know, standing upright, but gradually uh, and you know i look strained as well like i look like i'm really in pain so I'm like gradually just kind of like eventually just hunching over and i'm like this is how you cut it's like this and i'm like oh god that's terrible so that was unlucky it's it's yeah it's tricky and it's funny as well with putting committing physical things learning and lessons to to any type of uh, media that potentially might live for years to come I think obviously you want to be critical of what you're presenting and, and, and have a judgment of the quality, but at the same time, you can go too far. And sometimes it can be just like, you know, it's better to get something out than nothing out. And I feel like that about books as well. And, you know, I know a lot of people who've been working on books for 10 years and will probably never publish because they're so perfectionist about it that they'll end up making no book. And 
there's always a balance there, isn't there? You don't want to you don't want to release something that's completely crap, but at the same time, it's better to do something with nothing. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, we've um, we've both put things out there. I'm sure because, like, I've uh, you know, I do uh, a lot of stuff on Instagram and um, you know some other stuff, and. I think that there's a hurdle for a lot of people to get over, which is that criticism. Um, and, you know, I'll, like I'll put a video of myself cutting, uh, you know, doing cutting drills or doing some sort of exercise and I'll get somebody write, you know, write a criticism of that. And when you first do that, or you put a video on YouTube or you put uh, something on Instagram or, I don't know, TikTok or whatever the kids are using these days, um, it's like, yeah, I can imagine that 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 there is that fear of like negative uh, feedback. But then um, after a while, you just like I I I had uh, somebody comment on um, a video of Melissa and I doing uh, one of Fiora's dagger plays, and somebody just came on going, "Ah, oh, well, that's not really all that great, is it?" And um, all I do now is just say, "Well, show me a video of you doing it better." Um, and uh, yeah, uh, normally I'll either get no response, or in, in in the case of the fella today, he just deleted the comment. Um, and you just kind of get over that, don't you? Eventually, you're like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I I won't say I stopped caring a long. I was going to say I stopped caring a long time ago, but that's not actually true. I do care, um, but I don't care anything like as much. Um, I care a little bit, and it depends who it's coming from, basically. And I guess, you know, I don't don't want to sound elitist, but basically there are most people who comment, I don't really care. I don't really care what their opinion is because their opinion isn't <laughs> worth it. Uh, but, you know, there are some people whose opinion I do care about. Um, and I think that's probably the, the sort of middle ground attitude to take is that, you know, listen and be ready to listen to criticism. I mean, I, I, I've kind of gone through something. I guess I've gone through the completely not caring and then come out the other side. And I, I think it's important to also be self-critical as well kind of think well how would i judge that if if i was actually if this someone else had made this video and i'm judging it you know how would and and sometimes taking something on the chin and just going yeah okay that's a, that's a fair point it means that you can turn out something better in the future i think dagger dagger techniques are rife that uh, they're just they're just the breeding the the fertile breeding ground for the bacteria of, of um, internet comments because everyone and I, you know, I've made videos about this on my channel. For some reason, you pick up a sword, and I've seen this, and I won't say specifically, but I've seen people demonstrating things, particularly with Japanese swords, sometimes with Russian swords, on the internet, and they could say anything, wave the sword around, and some people go, "Oh, that's that's awesome! Yeah, that would work," because they've got. They don't even imagine themselves having any knowledge on actually how a sword might be used. But you pick something up that looks like something from their house, in other words, a knife, and suddenly they're the world's biggest expert on will or won't work with a knife, you know? Yeah. It's like you'll any kind of BS when it's with a sword, especially if it's a Japanese sword. But anything with a knife, even if it's based on, you know, World War II combatives or, you know, Israeli self-defense stuff or whatever it's based on, there's always 50% of the people are like, no, that would never work in the street. Yeah, so you believe it with the sword, but you're like, <laughs> it's so weird. Um, and it's and I think it's you know knives are more associated with real you know real fighting and you know people watch UFC and think that they know something about knife you know knife defense and they, they they kind of 
mixing knife-related things with kind of unarmed. The irony, of course, is that lots of unarmed martial arts are hopeless at teaching you how to protect yourself from a knife because they've spent years training to fight against unarmed people, which is a completely different kettle of fish. Um, and, you know, in many ways, I think even if you take a sport fencer, a sport fencer has got probably got a better sense of timing and measure at avoiding being stabbed than an average wrestler has. The wrestler might be able to be better at disarming the knife attacker, but the, the fencer will probably be better at not getting stabbed in the first place or running away or whatever, you know, but distance, basically. Um, and, you know, I've, I've seen, this is drifting onto a whole different topic, but I've certainly seen it in my club where people have come in with strong martial arts backgrounds in unarmed arts, particularly boxing, um, Aikido, all sorts of stuff, come into sword-based stuff, and the, uh, kickboxing as well, actually. And their sense of timing and distance is completely off for swords because they're thinking about being at punching distance or grappling distance all the time and rushing to that distance in many cases when they're just getting skewered. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, you still see this mindset a little bit, particularly in longsword competition in modern HEMA, where a lot of people are really into the grappling stuff, so they really want to do the grappling stuff, but then they don't, they kind of, in their enthusiasm to grab someone and throw them on the ground and hear that cheering, yeah, throw them on the ground, they kind of ignore the fact that they're getting run through the body or hit in the head with, with what's supposed to be a sharp blade on the way in, you know, so. Yeah. It's not a very good trade-off, really. Throwing <laughs> someone on the ground while having four feet of steel stuck through your body doesn't seem like a really good deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah, completely agree. Uh, it was something I was talking to Nick Thomas about because we were talking about how we could potentially, um, you know, train that uh, and, and train the importance of it. And I think that one of the things that we were talking about is the, the boffers being, you know, um, a kind of a good thing. Because you get people with, you know, a plaster on an 800 Newton jacket and, you know, whatever else on. Uh, and the, the point is you know the point of a sword glances off them which it wouldn't do it were it a sharp and then they rush in yeah. and they're sort of not noticing it whereas with the boffers um, because of the, they're soft but they're quite weighty and um you know we were talking about potentially doing something where you can do grappling um because you're not wearing all the kit and you can do grappling properly and you know hopefully safely but um it'll be harder to ignore certain strikes or certainly thrusts because they have like zero flex to them. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, I, I think you're right. And I've, I've had pro, you know, I've had problems with, um, with both, you know, people who are really, really on the outside kind of going, you know, going flick, flick and like jumping back. I'm like, I can't, I can't get at him. Um, and then people just like rushing in to get me. Um, in fact, there was uh, a tournament I was in in Italy, and it was quite funny because I got through to the uh, finals with side sword. And because I'm I'm tall, um, I think you and I. Are... No, you're taller than me. Um, no, you're taller than me. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, just I'm, a I'm just a, a touch there. I'm a meagre six foot one. I think you're about six four, aren't you? I am six four, yeah. So yeah, um, I'm six one. So you've got quite you've got a good few inches on me. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, well, I haven't seen you since Fight Camp uh, 2019, so, you know, yeah. Um, Literally years ago. <laughs> I know, yeah. Uh, that's something I want to uh, come back to. The, uh, 
all I was going to say is the uh, the fight with the side sword because of my height. I think that my opponent thought, okay, he's just got reach. That's all he's got, um, and so he kept running me down. Um, mm. And it was great because I'm like, you know, for, first and foremost for me, I practice fury, so I feel like for him running me down, I was like, yes, that's where I live. You know, elbow push, sort of thing. You know, and uh, yeah, that was great. But um, yeah, going back to uh, fight camp. Um, what uh, what are what are the plans for that this year? Are they are we same same as everybody else's? I should think. Just kind of wait and see. Um, I mean, I guess we'll probably have a better idea of whether it is likely. I mean, I literally have no. I'm just I'd just be shooting into the dark at this point. I have no idea what the rules. I mean, we don't know what the pandemic pandemic's even going to look like at that. You know, we don't know what the our rate and the, the mortality rate and everything else will be like uh, by the end of the summer so no idea um and then that's one element and the other element of course is the rules uh, what what you know rules they'll have in place for for um face-to-face -face events with numbers of people outside versus inside we might have some advantages in that regard it might be that we're allowed to go ahead because it's an outside event um and we i don't know you know there might be certain things that we have to put in place that we can still make it happen with certain restrictions um an event that's just about to happen in february anyway um the drain event um which i've um i'm an instructor for is a purely online event and it's um i think it's free um and so they basically went to all the normal instructors they'd normally have and if i they went to more than normal um and got them to video classes um, so they're doing, they're running an event, and then once the event's over, uh, kind of live streamed, and there's going to be a bit of live stream Q and A as well um, for that after each class. They'll then put the videos on their YouTube channel, so they'll be available for people to watch as well. So uh, you know, like you say, um, the mother of invention uh, and you know adversity and everything. It's it's. I think more and more events will probably do that. And again, this is knowing that you can do that and giving it a try because you've got no other choice means that in future years, we might look at having an actual event and some online sort of side by side material. Um, because, you know, and, and frankly, I mean, I'm kind of surprised that they're doing it for free because they could charge people five euros each and that would pay for quite a lot of stuff you know cumulatively because you might have hundreds of people around the world who want to see that so i think i think there's quite a lot of um, potential actually for as well as having physical events having an online element to it that people who are living out in the middle of arizona or in the middle of australia or wherever can actually just go online pay a little fee or if it's free then great uh, and they can watch some of that content and obviously it's not going to be the same as a, as a physically going to an event and being getting you know FaceTime with actual instructors and stuff but it's certainly better than nothing it comes back to saying it's better something than nothing and i think that's that's one of the things that lockdown will have taught us is that there are things we can do that we currently don't do because we haven't needed to do but once we've got used to doing them i think that potentially they can add to what we were doing before they can actually be a, a you know a net plus rather than just a kind of backfilling they can actually be something positive that we can do in the future that is better than what we were doing in the past yeah 
Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Um, I've been listening to uh, a martial arts, um, a few martial arts podcasts, and I know that there's uh, a global sort of, uh, there's an event which is about martial arts globalization. And it's, it's great because HEMA is kind of um, counted among one of the martial arts that they're discussing. Uh, and I think that that's something, um, I can send you the details if you like. Um, mm. It's something that they'll be uh, probably hosting more online than getting together. They were talking about doing like, you know, getting together in Sweden. And I'm like, that's wildly ambitious right now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, so that's, I, I think that that is, like you say, something that will, um, we'll see more of an online element um, going forward. And I, I, I'm aware of the drain event because they got in touch with me and asked me to um, just pop a, like a 15 second, uh, like introduction to the, in, to the Academy of Steel, um, which was, you know, which was great. That was fine. And I think again, like yeah. using those kind of platforms to, to promote other schools is fantastic. And it goes back to what you were saying about that kind of interconnected um, national uh, international, sorry, um, HEMA um, identity. I think we've also got to be careful of the flip side of it as well, because um, there, obviously there's a lot that you get from physical face-to-face -face contact and that group identity and that, you know, going to the pub afterwards or whatever different clubs do that you can't replicate online. And certainly, I mean, I'm sure it's the same for you. One of the things I'm looking forward to more than anything else uh, when things go back to something more like normal is being able to get to the pub <laughs> and you know sitting around sitting around in the pub and having having a shandy and, and just talking about nothing is just such a wonderful thing you don't appreciate it until it's gone yeah but yeah we and uh... that's you know so my, my club has that's always been where a lot of the the the, the social kind of dynamic and the, the kind of, you know, bonding. And I think a lot of people, frankly, I won't say they just join the club to, to jump, come to the pub, although I'm sure that's true of some people. But I think that it's a really important element. The more people you can get to mix outside of class, the better it makes the classes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, we have a slightly different tradition because where our... Um, our Cardiff branches, um, there's opposite the, the you know, uh, the venue, there's a Casper's Pancake House, uh, and they're open till midnight. So, uh, yeah, so we would do this thing, and it's like a million years ago now, but we would do this thing where I was like, right, okay, it's payday for most people. We're going to go to Casper's tonight, everybody. And there was both this kind of like feeling of, you know, yeah, we're going to Casper's, but then everybody would realize that I'm going to make them earn it by doing like extra exercises at the end. Right? So uh, at the end of the class, I just like, I've got to get everybody sweating, everybody kind of basically just lying in a pool of their own sweat. And I'm like, right, you've earned pancakes. Let's, uh, let's go and get some pancakes or waffles or whatever. Um, and yeah, you're right. It, it is that, that social side of things, that social identity and the, the, this like the social um, socializing skills as well that comes with it because the the internet is as we sort of talked about with people commenting it's both a like a, a wonderful tool and also uh, 
just a place for people to be anonymous and that that there's yeah. quite a dangerous side to it as well you know yeah 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 absolutely i mean it's like a free ticket to be an asshole isn't it and on yeah. one hand and, and on the other hand it's um it it's also a free ticket to be to become offended by things so so there are things that people can say with the right expression on their face perfectly harmlessly that will be taken harmlessly face to face that will cause the gravest offense and cause years of feuding on the internet um it's you know i don't think humans were designed to communicate in um you know limited language in small comments on a, on, a, on a screen it's not how we're built to function so yeah it can it can be a hindrance as well as a help but i do think that since in the years that i've been using internet i mean i used to run at one point what was probably the, the most active hema forum back in the day the, the scholar forum uh, which sort of came out of there was the uh, hacker forum which became the armor forum then there was sword forum then sword forum kind of fragmented and we ended up with the scholar forum and and various other forums as well and um you know I think since those days, people have new younger generations have come along and entered the scene, and the older generation have become far more adept at using this newfangled communication technology. And so we've all got better at it, actually. And I think definitely people are better. And things, little things like emojis and videos and stuff like that have, and, and Zoom meetings have hugely helped um, online communication but also the culture has had to change um uh, to, to you know i think some people have had to grow thicker skins but also people have learned perhaps more subtle ways that they can communicate online that are specific to online communication uh, to avoid offending other people and but you know there's flip sides to that and and um sometimes i think people over communicate on the internet and things like facebook can be quite harmful i think because you know, if, if people have Facebook, it's a bit like, you know, Twitter, certain famous politicians and Twitter, sometimes if someone just took that device off them, they wouldn't make that comment that infuriated hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> and everybody would be happier. Uh, and it's the same thing with Facebook. And sometimes, you know, you can express your view on something which other people might disagree with. And that creates a fracture that if you didn't, if you never said that thing, expressed that view, they wouldn't know you had that view and there wouldn't be that offence and you'd probably get on fine for years. So, you yeah, know, it's difficult. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely agree. And I find that it, it's quite funny because um, I was talking to um, a friend of mine and we, I was basically sort of um, talking about the parallels between a book that I was reading, which was... It, it, it's kind of the the psychology behind um people going to war and having to take another person's life and you know you've got accounts of people um having done that face to face with like a bayonet or a gun or something like that and then it talks about you know and it talks about the ptsd and obviously the guilt that they feel and you know all of these horrible kind of emotions that have been brought forth from that and then it talks about um, how drone pilots, because, you know, they're, they're removed, you know, several uh, stages from it. Drone pilots don't have that same feeling of guilt or, you know, some do. And obviously this is a, a generalization. Um, and I was basically saying, like, I, I think that sometimes the Internet can be the same thing. Like, 
you know, you say something to somebody's face and you know that you're going to have to see um, the effect that that's going to have on them. And you're going to have to like, and you can't just then log off and disappear. You've got to sort of stay in the room with them or, you know, you're going to at the very least have to see the, the outcome of what happens there. Whereas if there's somebody on online, uh, I don't know them, they don't know me. Uh, I can just type something, uh, send it. And then I may never read their response. I, you know, I go to sleep um, thinking, yeah, I, got, I gave them what for, but then they have to read that and I don't have to see what that does to them. Um, so I think, yeah. I think sort of related to that is, is um, speed of communication. And so, you know, there've been certain things through um, the last century which have accelerated our progress as, as a civilization in certain things you know like world war ii clearly massively pushed forward development of aircraft and rockets and all sorts of other stuff and various you know atomic science and everything um, and i think that the internet if we bring it <coughs> if we bring it back to martial arts yeah. i think the internet 100 percent is uh, largely responsible for the acceleration in HEMA growth and, uh, and but also our study of the sources. I mean, the fact that we know that sources are out there, you know, it's thanks to those forums that started up in the 90s um, and then various other, you know, platforms that have been used since then for spreading this knowledge, uh, but also um, spreading our understanding our ideas about things and it's very something that's interesting to me at the moment so on a number of videos i'm working on at the moment i'm having to learn a lot about chinese and japanese both weapons and martial arts and i have a little bit of a background in chinese martial arts and a little bit in japanese and i have some background knowledge in those weapons but i'm trying to take it to the next level so i can actually make informative and interesting videos about those topics um and something that um, is really interesting, I think, is that HEMA, I don't think a lot of HEMA people realise, but HEMA is having a really big knock-on effect on Asian martial arts, um, and particularly in China and Japan. Um, there are now growing movements of what is essentially HEMA, but for their martial arts. Um, so, you know, there is, a, there is a growing Chinese Kung Fu scene that's going, hey, look, what, and this isn't saying that this is necessarily true, but some of them are saying, look, what we've been taught in school in some cases for 20 years is rubbish, but we've got these manuals, we've got these treatises, let's go back to try and re to reconstruct what were they actually teaching in the 16th century or 10th century, or in the case of China, sometimes zero century, you know, first century. Um, and, uh, and same in Japan, you know, the, the scrolls that they have available in Japan in some cases are closely guarded by, uh, by traditional uh, Ryu, but um, sometimes they're not. Uh, and there's Korean, there's Korean treatises as well. And, but anyway, to cut a long story short, it's interesting to see that there are now similar movements. Whereas we always, I think, had an insecurity in HEMA because it's like, well, our stuff kind of died out and we're trying to recreate it. What's fascinating is their stuff didn't die out, but because it was still alive for all that time, it changed. So essentially it kind of did die out because, you know, what traditional systems of Chinese swordsmanship have survived from the Ming dynasty, for example, to today? None, nothing at all. Um, because various cultural changes for a start in China 
many people were banned from owning weapons or practicing with weapons for a long time. Um, same thing in Japan for certain social classes. And then, of course, there's been huge, there's been revolutions, there have been huge cultural shifts. And then there's just the passage of time. The fact that, well, we don't really train with swords anymore because it's not useful. You know, we've, we've now moved to just unarmed stuff and guns or, you know, whatever. Um, and so we have this idea in HEMA, I think, that our stuff died out and we're recreating it, which is true. But that's actually, in some senses, also true just about everywhere else as well, because basically wars haven't been fought with swords and spears really anywhere for quite a long time. Um, and, you know, just about the last places that were still using spears and swords in war, maybe parts of Africa, parts of Asia, it even died out there, you know. I mean, we've got videos from 1900 and even, even later than that, in some cases, of traditional African, African swordsmanship styles. But within one or two generations, it had been completely, you know, it just died because the younger generation were like, oh, well, that's, that's what grandfather did. I don't have any interest in that. So it only takes, you know, it only takes one or two generations for a martial art to completely die out, really. Mm. And unless you've got books or films or video or even things, tangential things like sword dances or uh, whatever, you know, oral tradition, then, then it's, it's dead, you know, and, it, and it's gone. So we're extremely lucky to have these uh, texts in the case of the oldest sources we've got. Um, and in, you know, in the case of the more modern or more recent stuff, like Victorian stuff that I also study, that's, we've obviously got lots and lots of uh, sources to study for that and lots of cross-reference, lots of things and uh, no, not a lot more nitty gritty detail. But um, frankly, I mean, for the medieval period, we don't have a huge number of sources. I mean, you've got the Lipton tradition, You've got Fury and Vardy, you've got the Bolognese tradition, we've got the Jus de la Hache and I-33. And that's, you know, off the top of my head, that's, there you go, that's the main medieval sources we've got. It's really very little. I mean, we're hugely lucky to have them, but it's not a lot. Um, yeah. And when you look at the differences, I realise I've shut off on a wild tangent. That's fine. When you look at the differences between Fury and Vardy, who are relatively similar in the grand scheme of things, and uh, the Lichtenau tradition, there are significant differences. Of course, there are points of contact, even in the names, terminology, you know, iron door and irons and fort and various other corona and cron and things like this. Um, there are connecting points and clearly, you know, Fiori says he studied with German and Italians and this kind of stuff. There are nevertheless, in what they actually show in the, in the treatises, significant differences in how they do things. And that's just two traditions. That's just the two main blocks of longsword stuff that we know about. We don't know what we know that the English and the French and the you know Burgundians and the Spanish and everyone else were using long swords at that time. But we haven't got a clue how they were using them. And equally, even just within Italy, we know that uh, the Milanese uh, masters were quite prominent, but we don't have any treatises surviving from them, so we don't know what they were doing. We only know about the Bolognese tradition so much because this string of Bolognese masters from Dardi decided that making treatises was a good idea. You know, Dardi, De Luca, Mancellino, Marozzo. So there was clearly this school, much like Lichtenau's lineage, had a, had a tradition of making books, much like some Japanese uh, Kenjitsu Ryu as well. If your lineage didn't have that tradition, then there's nothing remaining of it now. Mm. Um, I yeah, I think it's, so going back to, sorry, just to loop back to the original point. So I think the internet, is having a knock-on effect outside of HEMA. 
And, you know, my, my channel's just gone past 300,000 subscribers. Well, I don't think there's that many people doing HEMA in the world. Uh, and I know that a vast number, a vast majority of my viewers don't do HEMA, but they're interested in HEMA. And everything they learn from YouTube or, you know, anyone's channels, uh, whether they're watching Scalagram or, you know, Metatron or whatever other channels out there, some of, you know, Scal's got like one and a half million viewers or something like that. All of these channels are mentioning HEMA. And so these vast number of people, the majority of whom are under the age of 25 or under the age of 30 at least, and many of whom are just gamers or role players or just nothing. They've just got a general interest in history or weapons or something. They all know what HEMA is, and that's, that's changing the culture of, of martial arts and how martial arts interacts with the rest of the world. And, it, you know, it, like I say, it's having a huge knock-on effect, even, in, even behind the Chinese firewall, essentially, because all of my videos, I know, are replicated on Chinese YouTube. Um, and uh, one of the people who does it asked my permission to do it. And I said, look, they're going to get copied anyway, so go for it. <laughs> I'll give you my permission. Um, so, so, you know, this is, this is having the ripples of this are going, of uh, the HEMA movement, go out all the way to um, even traditional, what we see as the ven ven sort of venerable living traditions in places like Japan, even they're being affected by it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that, that I hadn't considered. One thing that I was thinking about is, um, you know, the sort of parallels between things like Kenjutsu becoming Kendo and the way in which we sort of, uh, the way that Hima will evolve in that regard, because um, obviously with Kendo, you have kind of um, uh, targets that are allowed, targets that aren't allowed, and you know things like that. And then how tournaments in Hima will affect the way in which we practice the martial art in the same way that people who practice Kendo will be, you know, the, that muscle memory will be training to go for those, um, you know, those different uh, body parts. But then also when you look at um, certain other martial arts that have kind of, you know, they, they've sort of um, branched out uh, like um, Kodogan, uh, Kodogan Judo becoming like eventually Brazilian Jiu Jitsu as it travels with the, the sources that we have, as you said, they're quite limited. And um, while we are lucky to have what we have, it's, it's really interesting because I've trained with somebody who practices Fury in, say, Ireland. Um, I can't remember his name now, and I feel really bad because he was a great guy. Um, <laughs> whenever, I'm, whenever I'm recording, names just go right out of my head. Um, but, uh, yeah. I don't know. But... Yeah. <laughs> you, can edit, you can edit it in. <laughs> okay, just as a quick aside, I will come back to the point I was making. Be... Like you're a pro because I never see the edits or whatever with your videos. Like you, you seem to remember the names quite well. Um, I was talking to um, I, I, to be honest, so I don't do a lot of cuts in, in my videos. I'm doing more these days than I used to to try and make the videos more concise and a bit more <laughs> less tangents. But um, I, if I can't remember something. I try to brush over it with some other bit of information. Right, <laughs> okay. one of the reasons why it goes down so many, but I, I assure you, there's plenty of stuff I can't remember. Uh, in fact, yesterday I was doing something about swords, and the model of the sword that I was holding, I could not remember the name of it, so I just described it roughly as a Tang Dynasty Yen or whatever it was. You know, so okay. <laughs> that's good to know because, like, um, 
I'm like, man, this guy's a pro. And whenever I put YouTube videos up, there are so many cuts. Um, that, and it's, it's largely because I um and are a lot, uh, like that. <laughs> but also just because I keep forgetting what the point I was going to make is. Um, my... uh, can I give you a tip for the umming and ahhing? So I, I, I naturally um and ah, even just in normal conversations, I um and ah a lot. Um, and I noticed on my videos, a few people pointed it out how much I did it. And I didn't notice it because I do it so much. I never even thought about it. And what I try to do is talk more quickly. So whatever is your normal speed of talking, turn it up by about 10%. Like a bit like you're in a rush, basically. Right. If you okay. do that, you tend not to um and ah so much. Oh, fair enough. Okay. Um, I'll try to... Uh, damn it, I did it again. <laughs> <laughs> try to keep talking and don't stop. And just whatever, even if you can't think what to say, just keep talking the whole time and fill all the space with words. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, I... So, right, there's only one time um, I actually thought, oh, no, uh, Matt Easton's videos, the video quality is dropping, and it was my fault. Because what I was doing is I was sat in my office and I was watching a fight between, I can't remember who it was, but they, they used the technique and I wanted to deconstruct it. So I was watching the video on like 0.5% speed or something like that. Uh, and I watched it and I went downstairs, I got myself a sandwich or whatever. I came up and I started working on something. And um, I thought, okay, I'll put something on in the background. And I saw up next Matt, Matt Easton. And it was, I, I think like misconceptions about the, the Japanese sword. So I clicked on that. Not realizing that it was still on 0 0.5 speed or whatever. So, <laughs> so you came on and you're like, uh, hey, folks, Matt. I thought to myself, oh, no, is Matt drunk? Oh, <laughs> I've just like had a stroke or something. This is the sound of ambulance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, just calling, calling up an ambulance. Going, Matt Easton, he needs help. Go quick! <laughs> oh my god, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Changing the speed settings on videos is a really useful tool, actually. And I always forget that you can do that on YouTube. Yeah, uh, I do it. I do it all the time with um, certain, uh, like I said, certain fights. Um, you know, UFC or it could be he largely HEMA as well if it's a if it's a tournament. Um, just to watch how people do these things under pressure and stuff like that, and that's great. But yeah, now and again, I just forget that it's on that setting, and I'll start listening to music, and I'm like, man, this is a really slow, boring <laughs> song. I wanted, like, no, I wanted something to pump me up. <laughs> I now know what I now want to know what certain. Tunes I like sound like sped up and slowed down and stuff. Uh, one of the weirdest bits of uh, feedback I ever received was from a guy who's like, "Man, I love your videos. I love your channel. I watch everything you do, but I find you a bit slow, so I turn the speed up to like double time." <laughs> like I can't imagine, like you know, especially speaking. I imagine I've got like some kind of helium voice, like <laughs> manically talking. <laughs> I can't even imagine. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I think the worst the worst time it's ever happened for me is uh, I forgot that I turned the, the setting of the speed down to half, like 0.5 or whatever. Um, and then I was doing um, burpees, but I was doing a minute of burpees, not realizing that it was at half speed. So I'm just like, Jesus Christ, this minute will never end. I just wanted to do that. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, uh, you know, pros and cons. But um, what I was saying about uh, the the kind of ripple effect of of um, having these different martial arts, and uh, like I said, I do fury, you do fury, and um, uh, you've got these sort of other people who do it, and they have their interpretations. Is that in a few generations' time, in the way that we see, you know, Okinawan karate, for example, and then the Japanese uh, karate and the derivatives from that sort of going out and, and somebody saying, well, I think this is a little bit better if you just kind of adjust this. And obviously, Bruce Lee famously adjusting, you know, martial arts. Do you think that we're going to uh, see a sort of, you know, an Eastern style Fiore, like as in Matt Eastern, not Eastern as in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I mean, definitely, 100%. That's inevitable, I think. Um, with, with anything where there's, number one, you've got several levels, but there's interpretation right at the beginning. You're going to have divergence. For example, the Exiles. I used to be, I, I used to run the Exiles with Rob Lovett back in the day. And, um, you know, the way that, and then, you know, I moved off and started Scholar. So, so we had from, what, 2001 or two, there was just a divergence in what we, we were doing, even though we started off in the same place with the same source, translating it, you know, at the same time. So we started off in exactly the same place and diverged. And there's, there's many, many reasons for that. There's, uh, you know, my background uh, compared to whoever else is, is interpreting it. Um, there's my preferences, you know, my body shape, my... Uh, you know, the fact that I've got a background before I did Pima in things like modern sport fencing and uh, tiny bit of kendo and other things, reenactment and things. Um, and then someone else's experience might be completely different. But then there's uh, the club, how the club operates and your subsequent experience. Um, so over the years, I've had numerous uh, members of my club who were quite in their time accomplished uh, sport fencers. I've had some people who were quite a bit of experience in uh, Eido um, and, and various other things, you know, not to list all the things, but whereas the other club who it, I'm currently doing all this time diverging from uh, might have their members might bring completely different mix of things. They might be mostly people who've got experience in maybe like, I don't know, full, full contact battle of the nations type stuff or, um, jiu-jitsu or whatever you know so different experience bases and like i said there's also preferences as well the fact that personally i'm not a particularly grapply guy despite the fact i'm doing fury ironically um i i don't have a background in unarmed uh, grappling arts my background's actually in unarmed striking arts um and by nature i prefer to stay at distance and 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 hit you know um so in that regard, I'd probably have been, in hindsight, better off doing other longsword systems, you know, maybe Morozzo or something, um, or, or one of the German um, systems. But, um, yeah, so there's definitely a divergence there. And then there's also a divergence in terms of how you interact with the thing that you're doing. And I think that's where we, the, the parallel that we make with modern Kenjutsu and modern Kendo which is a difficult subject to unpack because there was a time at which those were just different aspects of the same thing. And there are still some Japanese Ryu which practice both together. And uh, there are some traditional kendo schools where they practice kata that are exactly the same as some kenjitsu uh, kata, 
but then they compete in kendo. Now, that comes into the second point where I think where we're at now in HEMA. And I think that definitely the techniques and the systems that we see set down in the treatises were intended for specific contexts. And that isn't always the same. In fact, it's usually different to the context we actually now use them in. Um, and not all of those historical contexts were the same. So, you know, lots of people, I won't say rightly or wrongly, because I, I've never studied him, but lots of people say that Maya, Joachim Maya, is sporty, is sporty longsword. Now, I don't know whether he is or whether he isn't, but if he, let's assume for the purposes of the conversation that he's sporty longsword, sporty longsword is actually what most longsword sparring is. So actually studying a sporty longsword treatise might actually give you more or might be more applicable to your sparring or your uh, tournaments or whatever. And then, you know, there's people who enter tournaments for different purposes. Some people just win, enter to win, to win medals by whatever means, um, playing to the rules. And that's fair. I can't criticise that. If you're, if you're there to win a medal, well, do whatever you need to do to win the medal, you know. Uh, and that's where modern Olympic fencing has taken us. Um, whereas if there are defined parameters like kendo, where they, the people that devised the rules for kendo, and obviously the rules for kendo uh, have changed a bit over time. They're not the same as they were 100 years ago. But there was various different rule sets and they've kind of come into one, a bit like Olympic fencing. Um, those are put in place because they want to encourage certain behaviours. So, you know, the fact that there's only one thrust and it's to the, to the throat and you have to shout whatever the word is as you do it, um, that's because they want to encourage that type of training, I suppose. So, so they want to see a certain type of fight, so they put rules in place to try and encourage that type of fight. And I guess we could say we see the same in certain parts of Olympic fencing with the right of way, for example, um, that we have in foil and sabre, um, because they want the person to, if you attack, uh, then you have the you know, right of way and want the other person to be forced to defend before they can repost to try and reduce the number of doubles and try and enforce the correct behaviour. Of course, then you get people that play those rules and, and you know, will do the right actions to then charge in because they know that the other person is forced to defend. Um, so you can always play the rules, of course, but, but that's kind of going off the, um, uh, that's going off on a tangent. I think, so coming back to the original point, we're definitely going to end up with different types of HEMA, even where people say they study Fiore or they study, um, I don't know, Palace Cow, they're going to, they're going to, different clubs are going to end up with different cultures for a whole raft of different reasons that will mean that they will practice it slightly differently, they'll interpret it slightly differently, um, and they will compete slightly differently. And, you know, to be completely honest, I do study uh, Fiore. Fiore 100% is our main um, and almost only um, uh, medieval source that we use in class. But... In terms of how we fence for a competitive um, point of view, we 100% don't just try and replicate what we learn in the Fury techniques. And, and I fully respect people that do, um, but we absolutely mix in 
um, stuff there from other sources um, and just basic fencing stuff that works that isn't really mentioned in Fury that you know he probably knew about but just isn't in there. Um, you know, a typical example is the Winden uh, in, in Ox, which like 95% of competitive longsword fencers use, but it's not shown in Fury even once. It's not shown with sword, it's not shown with spear, it's not shown with pollock, it's just not there. And, you know, I mean, I remember back in the day when we were in the kind of the raw days of interpretation where people would have really like furious arguments on sword form over interpretation of, of treatises. And I, I, you know, I remember kind of saying, saying this point and people going, oh, well, but of course Fury's got wind and, you know, he talks about the thrusts, he talks about the five, the, the too high and the too low. Yeah, but he never shows it in a technique ever. And that's really weird when you put it into the wider context of the fact that it's also not shown in Vardy, it's also not shown in Marozzo, but it's shown in every single German longsword treaties, like all over the place. It's really like in your face. And this is, I don't, I, you know, when you put something as black and white as that, it's kind of worth taking notice of that and kind of going, well, that's a difference. That's quite a big difference. Um, and, you know, I, of, co of course, Fury and Vardy knew about this type of Winden, but why don't they show it? You know, there's obviously a difference there. Um, but we use it. 100% um, <laughs> we use it because it's a useful fencing thing to do and you can nail people with really good thrusts in the face with it. Um, so, you know, and, and equally, it's one of those things, it's that kind of one of those mar martial artsy cliches that, well, you need to know how to defend against it as well. And so if I'm teaching people how to fence longsword and potentially go into competition, well, yeah, I can teach you pure fury, but the opponent is very unlikely statistically to be a furious because most longsworders are doing licks now. So I have to teach you some licks now, otherwise you won't know what you're looking at. <laughs> yeah, 100% um, agree. I do the same with my students. And we've got this kind of like uh, jokingly, um, like boo, German, yay, Italian kind of thing going on in the class, which taken out of context um, is is quite bad because I there's a, there's a girl in my class and uh, she is German. So at one point I was like, okay guys, we're gonna be talking about, you know, the Zwerichau or whatever. Um, Cause again, yeah, you have to learn how to defend against this stuff. And I was like, and I said Zwerichau and then I was like, boo, German. And she was like, what? <laughs> I was like, oh wait, yeah. no, I don't mean you. I was like, okay, I gotta stop doing that. Cause people, people are gonna <laughs> so, um, But yeah, I absolutely agree. and. Um, it's funny when, again, uh, I, I've, I've put, uh, I put something up on, um, Facebook or Instagram and it was a, a technique that, um, Fury shows us, uh, and somebody, uh, somebody commented saying, uh, I, I can't remember who it was commented, uh, because they, they took it down almost immediately. Um, funnily enough, I did like, I, I didn't get a chance to respond, but I read it and, um, they commented saying that footwork is not canonical. And I'm like, well, uh, sure, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, here's the thing. Again, um, like you coming uh, uh, coming to it from a background of, you know, I did uh, kung fu as a kid. Uh, well, I started off with boxing, then I did kung fu, and eventually, most recently, I ended up doing um, Krav Maga and a little bit of Brazilian jiu-jitsu um, before coming into HEMA. And the thing that I really like about my instructor, and again, you know. Um, to say that that a martial art is effective, I think that that's 
I think that that's not necessarily a true term. I think that he, it, it can be taught by people so that it can be effective. Um, but any martial art, you're going to get people who don't really understand it or they, they add things to it that aren't useful. Um, but mm. my, uh, my instructor, uh, Jim, great guy, like absolutely practiced what he preached um like it, he did an insane amount of training like i you know i could never keep up with the guy but you know he was like if if the technique is you know a b c um but you want to get to c and there's a more direct route to do it just take b out of it you know and all of this stuff so whenever um uh, whenever I'll, like i teach a technique um from fury if i feel that there's a german equivalent that's more efficient a lot of the time I'll just kind of go, okay, so this is the Fure version and this is how we can technically make this, you know, this uh, technique from, you know, Ringek or whatever. Uh, I'm going to use um, Italian terminology, but it's actually from this source, you know. Um, so it's sort of cheating because you're kind of transplanting, um, you know, the Italian stuff onto uh, Ringek. You're like grafting it onto yeah. But, um, I have to be honest, if I went back in time knowing what I know now, if I went back to the year 1999, I think, 98, 99, when I started working on the translation of Fury, I, I think that I probably, it's difficult, but I think I would probably go with a different source. And that's nothing against Fury. I, can saw, you, I saw your face drop then. That's nothing <laughs> against Fury. But it's because I think that... Um, so I focused for most of my, for the medieval part of my HEMA career, I focused on longsword primarily and dagger. Or ironically, I actually started teaching dagger first because we translated that first because we worked through the, the Getty. So we started off with the wrestling, which is, as you know, a fairly small section, and then got into the dagger. And the dagger's a big section. It's as big as longsword, slightly bigger, I think. Yeah. Um, and... Um, so I actually spent years doing the dagger stuff before we really got onto the sword stuff, um, which is probably the right way to do things um, and gave me a foundation in some of the grapply stuff that I didn't have a foundation in before that. Um, but um, focusing on longsword, what I wanted to focus on was the longsword stuff. And that's what I spend the most time teaching these days. There is more material to draw on from something like Morozzo. Um, there's just a lot more, you know, there's a lot more techniques, there's a lot more variations and, and this kind of stuff. The reason why I personally fixed on Fiore was because I was pretty much obsessed at that time with that period. And Fiore dropped perfectly, you know, kind of the Hundred Years War um, and Wars of the Roses, but particularly the middle of the Hundred Years War was pretty much where I was, I was fascinated with that period and Fiore plonked right into it and fit with the right type of armor and weapons and everything I was into. Morozzo, of course, when you get into 16th century sources, as a medievalist, and you know, I did medieval history and archaeology at university, I was fully entrenched in that period. To me, Morozzo is kind of like, you know, kind of Renaissance later thing. Now, in hindsight, I realize, of course, that yeah, it's a slightly later, it's a slightly later fencing style, but Morozzo was born in 1480. And his master was De Luca, who was around in the middle of the 15th century. So he's very much part of a medieval tradition. Um, they hadn't yet absorbed all of the kind of, I would, this is a bad way of describing it, but the more renaissance stuff, you know, the, um, if you look at the so-called side sword material, there's definitely a, 
a, a change from Mancellino and Marozzo's material, which looks more medievally to me, through to the later Vigiani type stuff, which looks more Renaissance y before you get into everyone just using rapiers. Um, well, not everyone, but you know what I mean. I'm simplifying, but yeah. Um, so, so I kind of think that Mar I do now consider Mancellino and Marozzo as late medieval sources or systems, at least. Um, now, not to say that what they were teaching was necessarily the same as what uh, De Luca was teaching. It's not the same as what's in Anonimo, a Bolognese, which might be around the same time as them, but it seems to show more old fashioned stuff. So it's got Polax in armor, it's got hand and a half sword, and this kind of stuff. So it's possibly the Anonimo uh, is, if not literally earlier, I think the system might be slightly earlier. Um, there was some, uh, when it first was discovered, by, I think it was Luca Cesare uh, in Bologna, I think he discovered it, um, and it was uncatalogued and this kind of stuff. They were literally looking through reams and reams of manuscripts and finally found a treatise, an unregistered one, unrecorded one. And um, there was some debate when it was first discovered whether it was in fact, I think, De Luca as the master of both Mancellino and Marozzo, but I think people concluded it wasn't. Um, but, um, yeah, I, like like I was saying, I think in hindsight, I would have personally gained more longsword, more of a rounded longsword view if I had maybe gone with uh, Marozzo or some other source. The only thing I would say with the German sources is a lot of people argue, and I think true, the German uh, source material, there's a lot more to draw upon because they are connected lineages, connect, you know, they're all connected to the Lichtenau lineage, so they have this common terminology, they've got a very developed terminology for different, the different Meisterhau and the different um, gardens. Obviously there's inconsistency in some places, so one person's uh, ox might look slightly different to another person's ox, and one person's interpretation of a Krumpau is different to another person's interpretation of a Krumpau. But there's a lot of source material there, a lot more than we've got in Fury. We've just got these four Fury sources. Um, with not a huge number of longsword techniques in there. Um, but what I would say is that I think that Lichtenau's lineage is a very particular strategic view to longsword fencing. And I'm actually not very keen on it. Um, I'm not, the thing which makes me glad that I went with Fiore, ironically, is that I consider Fiore's take on longsword more similar to other types of um, fencing out there. It, it's by pure chance, I think Fiori's longsword is far more compatible with the with the saber stuff that I teach than if I'd done Lichtenauer longsword, because a lot of Fiori's um, system is it kind of looks like a parry riposte um, system, you know, and, uh, and he has things that maybe this is just my um, interpretation, but that look very similar to classical parries. Uh, and you find that in Marozzo, you find that in Vardy, and you don't find that so much in the German material. You do find it, particularly in the Langmesser, actually. Um, the Langmesser and the Dussac looks far more like a sabre, but in the longsword material, particularly with the Meisterhau and the focus on um, some of the angles and movements of the sword in the longsword material, whilst I know it is in theory connected to the uh, Langmesser material, in reality, the way that a lot of uh, German or Lichtenauer longsword fencing pans out is not so compatible with the way that I like to fence and the way that I see other systems working. 
But I think that, you know, I, 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 if I had 20 more years rewind button, I would, the ideal, I think, would be to go back and study Morozzo as well as Fiore. Because I know they're, they're certainly not the same. They're removed by a big chunk of time and different, slightly different traditions. But there is some relationship in there. And I think there's more similarity between Fiore and Morozzo than there is between Fiore and contemporary lips in our sources. Mm. I think that, like you with another 20 years, would be a very formidable fencer, considering that, like, um, no, I'm just, I'm just going down at this point. So I no, just no, get no, weak. No. <laughs> Fencer, you're a Renaissance man. And I mean, you know, no pun intended. But like, because one thing that you do really well is that you bring spears into it, which I think, you know, I, I love spears and uh, I think they're a really underrated weapon. I know that a lot of people say that. But I'm Welsh, and we have a lot of we, you know, we have a lot of history with the spear, you know. But um, you know, where you're sort of uh, practicing with, you know, uh, saber as well as you know these other other weapons, the you know, and where you're sort of uh, talking about the functionality of these Chinese, Japanese, Korean swords in concert with how they would you know how they compare and contrast to um the you know the western um weapons uh mm. i think that's i think that's great because you know the most recent series of videos that you've been putting out which kind of deal with this you know every humorist at some point has thought about the the comparisons but not quite to the same uh level as you know what you're putting out there at the moment i think I think for me, it all boils down to, I mean, I'm interested in differences. I find it fascinating learning about different, um, you know, different styles of weapon, different cultures and different ways of using weapons. But I think also there's, I'm also interested in the universal and nature of certain things. <clears throat> and that's not to say that, uh, you know, Mizashi used a katana in the same way that, um, you know, Yukumai used a longsword at all, that used completely differently. But each could learn something from the other. And if you stuck Mizashi and Yukumaya in a room and gave them a Star Trek translating device, um, then they could have a really interesting conversation, I'm certain. Um, and they'd both probably come away with it thinking, oh, well, I think most of what you said was bullshit, but <laughs> yeah. a couple of interesting things there. Hmm, maybe I think, you know, and that's kind of where I come at it from. I know how I like defense, and I know if, if I'm uh, mentoring someone in my club, fencing the thing, I, you know, I, I will um, give them certain advice that's based on my opinions and the way that they fence and, and, and my sort of vision of the world. But I'm really interested in other people's perspectives as well, because there's never one way to skin a cat. And if there's something that really annoys the, the bejesus out of me is, is people believing that there's, there's one way to do something because there's never one way to do something there's always like 50 different ways to do any one thing and you know I remember my mind being blown when I found out that a saw in uh, Japan has the that it cuts on I think it's cuts on the the pull and ours cuts on the push or something like that but, but it's like the other way around and it's just kind of like well, they're, but they both saw wood you know, it's not like, oh, which is the best saw to cut wood? Well, there is no best saw to cut wood because there's lots of different types of saw. There's lots of different types of wood. And there's lots of different things that you're trying to achieve. And it's just the same. You know, I like, I love that variety and learning 
why a certain thing is done a certain way in that very particular context. That's why I talk about context all the time on my channel, <laughs> because it feels, when people make fun of it, it feels a bit like cheapening it, because it's like, yeah, you can make fun of it, but actually that is the answer. And it's not like, it's not an easy get out, because I don't just say, oh, well, here's a video topic, the answer is context. I don't just, I try and actually say, and what is the context? Yeah. You know, it's not, yeah, everything come, get, comes down to context. But now let's actually think about what is the context? You know, why, you know, why is the point of a, uh, a Japanese um, hachi or katana shaped like that? You know, and you, you look at, okay, well, it's shaped like that because of the material it's made of. And uh, if you made a, a spear pointed tip like on a European longsword, it would snap off because they have a differentially hardened blade and it wouldn't have enough strength behind it. Um, and the fact that they have a point shaped like that affects the, the way that you cut, affects the way that you thrust, affects also the, the design of the armor, all sorts of other things. And, you know, I love, I love kind of trying to work out the puzzle, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I had that when uh, I got in touch with you because I was talking about um, the disc, uh, the disc guard, uh, as it were. That's a very funny coincidence because literally this morning I've been working on a video on that very topic. Really? So I've been, yeah, I've literally, literally up until the the minute after I finished my lunch, up until the minute before we um, connected, uh, that is what I'm literally working on at the moment. Is a video on disc guards, right? Uh, because I've had my yeah. I've made lots of assumptions about discards and literally the other day I was um, filming a video where I mentioned discards and um, I really, and I say this in the video, I said like actually I don't know where they come from. I know that they're very prevalent from a certain period in loads of different countries in Asia, but I have no idea where they started. So I thought, well, let's go and find out. And I think I'm getting close to the answer, but one thing I've found out is that basically no one knows. And it's one of those things I've never thought to ask, and no one actually knows the answer. That I, no one that I found, anyway. So that's going to be a good video, then. You're going to be like, ah, oh, I well, don't know. <laughs> it might be, yeah, it might be an unsatisfying video because I don't have a definitive answer, but I have a likely answer. Okay. It's not the answer. It's not at all the answer that I thought I'd have. Oh, okay. That's interesting. <laughs> um, I'll look forward to that then, because um, <laughs> I. <laughs> Um, the, the thing for me is that, yeah, you know, with the, with the Katana, with the Tsuba, there are certain things that you, you mentioned in the video um, that you talk about to do with guards, I think, sword guards um, that you released recently. And it, it is one of those things that I'd never thought about it as more to prevent your hand running onto the blade um, than as a guard, because I thought to myself, well, you know, when you have these kind of, um, these sort of cross guards and they, they run down, um, it's, uh, you know, it makes sense that D-rings kind of developed and then these more complex kind of um, things developed. And I was like, why, is it, why did it take so long? But yeah, that functionality, as, as um, you mentioned as well, with, the, um, with having a gauntlet and then sort of wrapping your hand around that so it protects all of that sort of stuff. I, I love things like that when, when you have that kind of light bulb moment where you're like, oh, yeah, I get it now, <laughs> you know? I mean, there's there's a whole there's a big big topic that is in my um, back pocket that I've been working on for a while, but which again I don't have conclusive answers on at the moment. They require more time and more information uh, for me to get to a point where I think I'm ready to start putting videos out on the topic. But potentially it can span across several videos, and it's related to armor. Um, and lots of people superficially understand that wearing armor changes how you fight. 
on a simplistic basis, it means that you've got more weight, uh, you're a bit slower on your feet, your point of balance is slightly different, uh, your vision, your hearing, your stamina, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. Those are the simple things, but there are some really nitty gritty things that when you start to look at really accurate replicas of certain armors from certain periods, um, and actually a lot of armor out there isn't accurate. A lot of armor is made how people think it should be made by modern armorers. And there are lots of armorers who are making like an impressionist painting of medieval armor, but they're not making the tiny details correctly. And, um, but in recent years, much like the HEMA movement, there has been a push amongst the armor community to make ever more anally accurate um, armor reproductions. And they're really, they're going back to the source, they're going back to original bits of surviving armor in collections like Cherbourg, and actually going, okay, well, let's just copy that and see how that works. Because for example, something I got somewhat obsessed with for several months was wrist articulations in gauntlets because uh, many many moons ago and so i um i'm friends with toby capwell um, of the wallace collection and, and every now and again we have a catch-up conversation about something that happens to be obsessing us we're both quite obsessive people and, and i was at the time obsessed so he obviously for many years was obsessed with english armor and championing the fact that there was a distinctive english style of armor which when I was a teenager, no one conceded. Everyone said, oh, there's Italian armor, the German armor, and then there's a sort of continental style armor. Um, but no, if you once you get into the into about the 1420s, uh, 1410s, 20s, right up until the end of the 15th century, there is very much a distinctive characteristic style of English armor. Alongside, not to say that all English people wore it, alongside import armors from Italy and elsewhere. Um, and one of the things that I found fascinating looking at this English armour is that it's very conspicuously noticeable on a lot of English armours that the gauntlets are of a different design to those seen on the continent. And one of the things that's really different is they seem to have more articulation lanes in the wrist. And you think, okay, well, why are they so obsessed with articulation lanes in the, in the wrist? Um, and one possible answer is the English were famous for fighting on foot. I mean, obviously they did fight on horseback as well, but they traditionally, certainly against the French, used to dismount to fight. And even in the Wars of the Roses fighting against each other, they usually kept some cavalry in the wings, but the majority of the force was made of archers. And then the knights or men of arms were dismounted with the archers, mostly to protect the archers, I think. So a little bit similar to the pikemen and musketeers relationship in the 17th century. And um, I thought, well, maybe it's related to fighting on foot. Um, and the jury's still out on that. But the point is that I started looking at actually how these wrist articulations were made. And I started looking at surviving gauntlets. And what became rapidly apparent to me is that HEMA people uh, don't, most HEMA people don't know anything about armor. Um, even people who are doing longsword, most of them don't actually really know anything about armor. They know what armor looks like and they know the basic ideas of the fact that, yeah, it adds weight and heat and these kind of things, but it protects you very well. And, um, but they don't know about the nitty gritty of armor and how the different pieces interact. And um, what's interesting is I think there's certain things that we take for granted in HEMA, which can't work that way in accurate armor of the day. Um, Things to do with how you step, passing footwork, 
um, of how your shoulders, uh, how your arms and shoulders can articulate when you're wearing a breastplate and whatever. Um, but coming back to the wrist, particularly how you cut, and something that blew my mind is to find out that a huge proportion of both Italian and German gauntlets for most of the 15th century, you cannot cut with a sword in the way that most of us cut with a sword. Um, you simply, so most of us cut by extending, extending out here, trying to get my hand shot, extending out there. You can't make that angle with traditional... The kind of handshake grip that we use when we extend in the cut. Um, and that's such a simple thing. It just kind of blew my mind. Now, there are some gauntlets you can do that with. So if you go back to the 14th century and you look at hourglass gauntlets with a very flared cuff, no problem. Mm. Uh, so long as the knuckle um, plate is angled in relation to the wrist angle and you have a flared cuff, you can pretty much cut in the way you want to be able to cut. So you can cut through water bottles or to tie them <coughs> pretty much normally with hourglass gauntlets. But if you go a little bit further into the 15th century, when a lot of sources, certainly the German sources, date from, um, you can't cut like that. But do we actually see them cutting like that in armour? No. They don't really do it. Um, they half-sword and they thrust and they cut They cut a bit like the Indians using a tolwa. They cut with a stiff wrist and cutting from the elbow and from the shoulder. So it has a whole knock-on chain of ideas and makes me think, are we actually cutting with the right body mechanics here? Because if you have a gauntlet which restricts your ability to flex your wrist in that direction, incidentally, these gauntlets allow you to flex the wrist in this direction, but not in this direction. Um, so they restrict you in, in cutting in certain ways, which makes me go all the way back and think, are we actually cutting with medieval swords in the wrong way? And you start looking through medieval art, and you start to see there are examples of people extending the blade out like we would see with a saber in later swordsmanship. But there's a huge number of examples of people cutting with a, what I call a stiff wrist, as we see in uh, Indian martial arts, as we see in certain Filipino martial arts. And so it makes me think, are some of our fundamentals wrong? And the other thing about armor as well is, and if you start cutting with a, st with a stiff wrist, passing footwork becomes even more important because you have to pass to get the, the motion in cutting from the elbow and the shoulder, you apply the whole hip rotation to it. And we know that passing footwork is the normal form of footwork in medieval swordsmanship. So, yeah. something interesting to think about. Oh, that's, that's really fascinating because like, yeah, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't thought about that. There was a question that you posed um, on one of the many Facebook groups that um, we're on, uh, together and it was to do with um when you get somebody who's in a full suit of armor and they're wearing uh, but they're not wearing you know gloves or yeah. or anything like that, that. Was, i noticed that, that, was, that was posted when i was deep in in the research <laughs> okay. when the obsession that that's the other thing i noticed because i was looking for pictures of people cutting with gauntlets on yeah i kept finding pictures of people in armor cutting without their gauntlets on yeah and the is, is you can go oh that's just the artist's rendering but clearly the artists can draw armor because they've drawn armor all over <laughs> and some of the people have got gauntlets on why do they keep showing in numerous manuscripts and paintings people wearing full head-to-foot armor but without their gauntlets on and given what i've just said it kind of makes you think are these guys is it's because they want to cut properly so they're just going ah screw these and just yeah. doing it without their gauntlets on because it was 
Yeah, I thought it was a great question. And um, I was, because I was looking at uh, one of the Gladiatorio uh, manuscripts and it yeah. was, yeah, they're half sorting, but they don't, they're not wearing gauntlets. And I thought to myself, is it for, you know, is it so you can mount your horse and ride and do, because one of the things that you've talked about context is when you've got your your helmet and you don't want to be wearing your helmet you know all the time you don't want to be sort of you, you know um uh, kind of marching to and from battles and things like that with you know your visor down or whatever so you know you're gonna have it back i was like is it for the convenience of being able to sort of you know and i yeah i couldn't i couldn't figure it out but you're absolutely right because if if i can't um extend with the wrist then that passing foot footwork becomes really important because of range. I, I you know, I, I'm I'm not cutting that far if it's just kind of the hammer grip rather than yeah. the handshake grip kind of thing. So, um, yeah. But that, then the yeah, the other interesting thing is we start to see in Italy the the introduction of finger rings and putting the finger over the quillon, which first seems to appear associated quite often with sword and buckler fencing, which is unarmoured. Um, and then we see finger rings. You can't fit an, a gauntleted finger through one of those finger rings. So those finger ring swords are specifically for people not wearing gauntlets. Um, but they first appear around 1400. Um, the earliest dated example I know of is in the Royal Armouries from the Alexandria Arsenal, and it dates to about 1410, if I remember correctly, 1408, 1410. <coughs> um, so we perhaps start to see a divergence in the way that swords are used by people in a dueling context or a lightly armoured context compared to the people wearing gauntlets in armour. And if the people in wearing gauntlets, um, in wearing full armour and wearing these gauntlets are basically uh, using their weapons either as a bludgeoning instrument against another armoured opponent or half-sorting, then you don't necessarily need that flexation in the wrist. And the thing which I started thinking was like, why they 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 make the gauntlets so they've got so like up and down, but not side to side. But the only importance for that is couching the lance. The reason they have that is so that you can couch the lance in in jousting, and uh, for the left hand for um, steering the horse, because you hold the reins of the horse here, and you pull. You want to be able to pull left and right to steer the horse. Um, but why, given that they can make these articulated joints, why aren't they making them so they can do this? Because we know you can make gauntlets like that easily enough because we do it for HEMA gloves. And interestingly, if you look at Battle of the Nations and HMB gauntlets, they're practically never historical. They just, they just make gauntlets that work for the activity that they do. And what are they doing? They're bludgeoning each other with um, blunt swords and, and similar things. And their gauntlets all have fantastic uh, wrist mobility in this direction. And they're not constructed in a historical way at all um, because they can't construct them in a historical way and have that degree of wrist mobility, unless they use hourglass gauntlets, which can do that. But when they have wrist articulations, very often you see the rivets are on the top and the bottom to allow the wrist to do this. But historical gauntlets that I've seen, I've never found a single example like that. They all have the rivets on the side. So they don't allow. Now, there's one caveat to add to this, and that's that rivets are can be loose riveted. So if you have articulations where the rivets are on the top and bottom of the wrist, by not having the rivets riveted all the way down, um, so it can wiggle. So you end up with some wiggle room. So you do end up with some <coughs> articulation, but 
it still seems strange to me that if people were regularly cutting in the way that most of us cut with the sword, then why would you restrict that at all? Because there are other ways of making, you know, if you look at the fold, uh, the, the hoops of plates that go around the, the skirt, essentially, or you look at some of the shoulder defences, there are numerous articulations that they knew how to make where you could have made this wrist joint, a bit like a um, sparring glove, uh, you know, kind of articulated hoops. There are numerous ways you can make that so it has no restriction whatsoever, but they didn't do that. Even on the famous kind of Gothic German gauntlets of the end of the 15th century, the rivets are all down the side. So you've got great mobility this way, but not very much that way. Just seems kind of strange because that's how we cut most of them. Um, but then when you've studied other uh, ethnographic martial arts styles, if you look at the you know, Sikh um, uh, martial arts and you look at the Indian talwar, well, they don't extend the hand out because you've got a disc hole there to enforce you to grip it with a tight fist and to cut from the elbow and the shoulder. And according to 19th century British sources, because they considered this a stronger way of cutting. Who's to say that maybe Viking sword hilts maybe are related to that? Maybe European um, short, very short gripped arming swords that we see earlier on in the in sort of, you know, kind of 12th, 13th century. Maybe that's related to them having short, short, um, short grips. Maybe people were cutting in a slightly different way than we cut now because they were trying to put their full body into a blow with a passing footstep rather than getting maximum reach. And I think this is, this is where our HEMA experience can prejudice us because we're thinking about hitting someone with the end of a blunt weapon from as far away as we possibly can. What we're not thinking about is I want to chop through that person so they're also goes in half, you know, which we've got descriptive accounts of. You're not thinking about giving a great big, you know, fight ending blow in HEMA, usually. Some people do it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, so maybe there was a different mindset to some of the cuts that, that, that are being given. And um, I don't know, there's lots of questions and my theories might be completely wrong. That's the important thing to caveat. Yeah, but I think that's absolutely fascinating. And I would love to see like some top level humorists give them these gauntlets at the very least just the gauntlets and go okay fight each other like if you go like Koltaev and you know he fights like I don't know whoever and uh, and they fight like just to see how it would change the way they cut um, well the, yeah, I mean the funny thing is is you know there, there are always going to be people who don't like and I'm prepared for this who, who don't like my way of thinking and are being like no no you're totally wrong you need to look at these gauntlets you need to look at those this artwork and you need to, and I, I think there's a spectrum here. And I think definitely, as I said, I think there were people cutting in that way, particularly in unarmored uh, situations, particularly in sword and buckler, particularly anywhere where you've got the finger over the quillon, because you only put the finger over the quillon if you've got this kind of slanted grip, like most of us cut like. Um, but there are some gauntlets which survive from the middle of the 15th century both right, where both right and left hand survive. And the right and left gauntlets are not always the same as each other. Sometimes a left gauntlet has less mobility because it's just designed to be very protective and hold the reins of the horse or for literally for just hiding behind like a shield. While the right gauntlet usually has more mobility, but it's not always the case. In some cases they are the same. And there are literally gauntlets that survive from the middle of the 15th century, very well documented. They've not been messed around with very much where they have an utterly fixed wrist 
where they have no wrist articulation whatsoever. And the only flexation you get is from the very slight uh, flare in the cuff. So because the cuff flares out from the arm brace slightly, you can move the wrist about that much, but no more than that. And like you say, I think if you replicated those gauntlets and gave them to one of these people and say, now cut that tatami mat in half, I mean, it wouldn't even need to be sparring. You know, anyone who's um, uh, done stuff with confined basket hilts has probably had this impression. So I, I used to use, I'm used to using a saber in a certain way. And I have a lot of problems. I know people like Jay Moss have adapted to the basket hilt. Um, but personally, I've never had enough time in the basket hilt to adapt to it. And I find a basket hilt very restrictive to my grip when I'm cutting. And um, I find it actually quite jarring uh, to my cutting technique because it limits the rotation, limits the motion of my hand and my wrist such that I have to apply the body more. And the, for me personally, I find it shortens my range. It means I have to get much closer to the target. It might be a stronger blow, and it means that the edge is meeting more obliquely to the target. So it's more of a slicing, chopping, cleaving cut rather than sort of, you know, a lighter but a longer range cut, um, which of course is what the Indian talwar is supposed to promote. It's supposed to promote a deep, you know, strong cut at an angle. A bit like some people say you should cut with a katana, although I've since noted that in historical sources, you can find every different way for a katana to be used. But um, yeah, so I don't know. I, it would be interesting even just, and this is something that I have a plan to do in the distant future, is to try and get accurate reproductions of these gauntlets and then demonstrate that to cut through a tatami mat, you need to cut with different body mechanics. And then in sparring, it changes a lot of your distance management and movement, how you have to step and how you have to uh, twist the hips and the shoulders when you cut in order to get force into the blow and this kind of stuff. Yeah, it gets very complex. But again, I don't know if I'm about the wrong tree. I might be completely wrong, and it may be that really good replicas of these gauntlets. It might turn out that if you get all the angles right, that you've actually got slightly more rotation than I would have thought of. And one of the things studying gauntlets, I found that a lot of modern replicas get completely wrong. And I've had several pairs of gauntlets in my life, and I've got two pairs at the moment, and both of them are wrong. And I need a better pair of gauntlets made. Um, the, the angle between if you draw a straight line down the knuckles and then a straight line through the wrist, a lot of armorers get these two angles too similar to being parallel. And actually, when you hit something, the position you end up in is actually with an angle quite slanted here compared to that angle. So, so the angle should be more like perpendicular between the wrist and the knuckle. Interestingly, if you look at a lot of hourglass gauntlets, for example, or various other gauntlets from the 14th and 15th centuries, the angles between the wrist and the knuckle are quite wide like that. So it's almost like put you in the cutting position already. Uh, so it's almost like at the cost of being able to bring the, you can't do that, but you're already kind of in hitting position. But that would also suggest that you have to be giving more from your elbow and shoulder than we normally would do when we cut in, um, well, certainly in Sabre, we, we do most stuff from the wrist. But I think in medieval systems, the, the use of the elbow, I think is very, very important. Yeah, I'd, I'd never considered that myself. I've got a pair of gauntlets, um, but they're like clamshell, um, fairly early uh, flared cuff hourglass um, gauntlets. They're, they're quite hefty. And the thing that I generally use them for is um, 
to, to give my sword extra weight when I'm doing cutting drills. Um, and it's just to sort of, you know, give myself a bit of a workout. I don't, uh, I don't use them um, really for anything more than that. And I obviously considered how my dexterity is minimalized by them. Um, I actually, the, the most recent thing I used them for was uh, I put a video out um, on YouTube, which was, is the Mandalorian a crap fighter? And because, uh, uh, you know, he gets shot a lot. Um, so I was like, is he crap? Or is it just that the best scar is, is the best star? Um, and, uh, you know, um, I was basically talking about the bit where he's fighting the, the pirates on the, on the transport uh, thing and uh, he's wearing the crap stormtrooper spoilers by the way for anybody who's listening and hasn't yeah. seen um, he's wearing the um the like the crap stormtrooper armor and he's so used to relying on being able to sort of uh, block with the armor that it just gets yeah. torn apart uh and so i was using like i did a, a short video of uh, melissa and i um fighting and she's got a spear and i've just got these gauntlets and i'm just trying to block with the gauntlets and uh in, in one of fury's uh guards but um yeah it's it's not something that i'd thought about largely because i don't have uh, you know obviously uh, you know i can go to leeds museum or, well i could but <laughs> i could go to yeah. these different museums i can have a look at the armor but as you said um i i hadn't looked at that nitty gritty of it because probably the most exposure i've had to armor is at the stibbit museum in florence and unfortunately the you know there are loads of suits of armor there and they're they're great but you've got a 45 minute window in which to sort of go in and see everything and go out and you you're just getting like shooed out don't know if you've ever been to the stibbit museum i have yeah yeah fantastic it, it's it's great I've been three times, and on the third time, because um, I lived out in Italy, on the third time they finally opened the uh, the samurai section, and that was the first time I saw it, and I hadn't seen it before. So I was just like, I was up there, and they're like, "Okay, time to go," and I'm like, "No, there's not enough time." So very lucky with the Stibbert, and I was there for a conference, so we we actually were, were we had a lock in at the Stibbert, which was which was very nice, and we got to handle some of the stuff. Um, so, but every time, because I've been to Florence probably, I don't know, five times, I think. Um, and every time that I was in Florence previously, I hadn't been able to get into the Stibbert because it was shut for one reason or another. So it was it was great to finally be able to get in there. So I've only been once, but it was a lock-in, so I can't complain too much. I remember one of the swords we got to hold was uh, one of the Tolwars of Tipu Sultan. Um, oh, that's awesome. Of which yeah, of which there are, in I think there's somewhere 10 or 20 swords of Tipu Sultan in the world. One's in the Wallace collection, one's in the Stibbert, and there's various others. Um, and it's debated over whether they were, I mean, he probably did own lots of swords, uh, but they might also, they were obviously looted probably by British soldiers during the siege. And um, whether they were his or whether they belonged to other you know, high-ranking people or bodyguards or whatever, we'll never know, but they've all got tigers on and that's why they're, why they're identified with the tiger of Mysore is, is, the, uh, is the fact that they all have tigers all over the hills. That's, that's cool. It's because we were talking about sort of Eastern martial arts and traditional martial arts, um, because there's this kind of mythos that's tied in with certain uh, 
uh, certain people who are the progenitors of, of um, you know, of that martial art. And even with something like Krav Maga, which is relatively recent, um, Amy Lechtenfeld does this kind of like, oh, well, he invented Krav Maga and stuff like that. And it's like, well, if you kind of look at it, he, he adapted a few things. He brought a few things in, you know, um, but there's there's always that that sort of knock on effect like of stories being told and then retold in, you know, 100, 150 years with you being kind of one of the big names in HEMA, do you think that you'll reach that legendary status? <laughs> no, I, I, no, not at all. And, and also it's a, it's a different kettle of fish because I'm just, at this point, I'm known primarily as a, as a modern television, I guess, personality rather than a martial artist. And, and um, I, think, I think if you're overexposed, then any mystique, uh, is is lost uh, and you know to be completely honest i um i guess that was sort of one of my um one of my motivations to starting a youtube channel was actually to set down some of my thoughts and opinions on stuff in in a way that people would find um how to phrase this more human i guess because at the time it was in the age of forums and everybody having, you know, big kind of cliques and arguments and this kind of, you know, one flame war after another on forums. And I thought this is just BS and it's just disappearing into the ether. No one's ever going to look back at this stuff. And time has proven that that's true. Forums have gradually, you know, they died and gradually people stopped paying the bills to the service providers and they get deleted and lost and that's gone, you know. Um, and I kind of thought I'd rather my journey through research and training and advice to my students and that kind of stuff i'd rather have that under my control in a place where it can't be lost but also in a sense and this kind of sounds arrogant but it's not supposed to be where that's just my view and i don't have to get into a dialogue with anyone about it you know if i feel confident in saying okay i've been researching this thing this is the thing i found out and I don't feel like I speak and comment underneath, and I, I read most of my comments actually. Certain, certainly for the first day or two when I published a video, I, I read all the comments and I respond to quite a few. Um, but after that point, it's just kind of it is what it is, and it gets left behind, and I move on with the new stuff. But, um, but I don't have to get into a debate or an argument with anyone. I just kind of like this is my view. That's out there. I've explained fully why that's the case, and I think. People are less inclined to argue with you when they've seen your face with facial expressions and tone of voice and everything else explaining the thing. And even if they disagree with my view, they can understand why that's my view. And one of the problems I think with internet communication, this comes back to our earlier conversations about forums and Facebook discussions and stuff like that, is sometimes when you post your view on something, I think a lot of people see that as a green light to kind of go, and now I'm ready for you to argue with it. Kind of like, you know, this is sometimes you're just sharing your opinion on something. You're not looking to make some great debating point um, uh, or get into a long discussion over it. You're just going, okay, here's my view. I've read your view. I'm going to read that person's view. That's it. That's all I wanted from this. I didn't want to get into a 14 page argument over whether you think I should hold Posted Donna 
by the front of my ear or by the rear of my ear, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've had or quite a few. Anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. I've had quite a few of those. I don't like, uh, the thing is I've got stuff to do, you know what I mean? I'm a busy man. So like whenever anybody sends me these essays and like, you know, and stuff, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to read that. And I feel like, um, I'll, I'll read like the first part of it maybe but if it comes you know if it if it starts off it's like well you're an idiot and here's why i'm like okay well you know i know exactly I tell you a really a really sad a really sad thing though is that um subs the number of subs you've got does become like armor and the more subs you get the more armored you get and it shouldn't be that way but it actually is and i have found people questioning and arguing with me far far less as my channel has got um, more subs really um and yeah and it, it feels awful saying that out loud because it's a bit like saying well money doesn't make you happy but it helps <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of true you know it's one of those harsh realities of life that and and to be honest i um I guess because in the false kind of reality of, of things like YouTube that people, they do look at, you know, they do look at channel and if it's getting, if it's getting a certain number of views and subs and stuff, then, then they kind of feel like, oh, well, that's legitimacy, I guess. And that's a double-edged sword, so to speak, in, our, in the puns of our world, yes. um, because there are people out there who have uh, great channels and have tons of subs sometimes say things that are just complete rubbish on the topic that they decided that they were interested in but maybe didn't know an awful lot about and um this can be somewhat painful because i sometimes see this happen and their opinions are taken completely unquestioningly by the viewer because they've got a lot of subs there are loads of people there adoring their content and so no one has the courage or or thinks to question what they're consuming. And we find this with television as well, of course. Um, I've, people, I've seen people who have argued with me on certain things, quote television documentaries at me or send me links to things. And I'm like, but it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> the, person on the, the person on the television that you think is like some sort of godlike entity it's no different from you or me. They've gone and read something in a book and they've said it on a TV screen and they explained it wrong, you know, or they misremembered or, or they haven't researched fully around the topic and they just read one book instead of five, you know. So everyone's fallible and everyone makes mistakes yeah. and sometimes everyone says crap. The one thing I've always tried to do on my channel is, um, is to try to absorb new information and try to admit when I'm wrong. And I've, I've, I've um, had to go back several times I don't take videos down in general, um, but I have had to go back and do videos on a topic again where I said, look, I made a video on this topic two years ago. I've learned a lot more since then. And uh, maybe some of what I said was wrong or some of it was just ill-informed. In other words, it wasn't a fully rounded opinion yet. And now I know more. So um, and 100%, I've said things in about uh, even stuff, some of my core material, like... Um, stuff about Fiore or stuff about Victorian um, saver sources. I've said stuff as little as three years ago that I now know is categorically wrong. So I'll just go and correct it. But that's one of the great things about video rather than writing a book. If I'd written a book three years ago, I'd now be like, oh God, <laughs> I'm going to be in libraries for decades to come and I know that that's wrong. 
yeah. whereas a video i can just go and release a new one like that um, and more people will see it as a video than ever would have seen it as a book yeah and i i think that that's that's good as well because then people are part of the journey if that i know how pretentious yeah, exactly yeah. you know where you turn around and you say i've learned something new um then you're able to sort of reframe their way of thinking about things and even when you do because i know that you uh you put out a video and it was to do with uh, lord of the rings where they've got like a, a big kind of pole axe and then a shield and then um i remember oh, yeah. the video after going like was i wrong and i think that that's a really important yeah. question to ask like what was i wrong about this um and you know it goes back to that thing of i suppose having the courage to do that when you've got um uh, people who are you know criticizing or whatever and we talked about that you know you put a video up somebody criticizes it and the first time it's like oh shit am i you know am i doing it wrong am i am, am i a fraud like i didn't think i was yes <laughs> this rando on the internet says i have I myself <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah because <laughs> You just start questioning everything, like, like you've entered the matrix. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I mean that that for me is, I think, uh, the reason that I keep sort of coming back to your channel. And you know, no offense to Scalagrim or whatever, not that I think he'd listen to this podcast, but like, I don't, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, to be honest, um, I've watched maybe three or four of his videos. I, I think it's the, like, for me, I just, I can't get into them. And, um, you know, I, th I just, I think the ability to sort of, as you say, turn around and say, I, you know, was I wrong, add a layer to what you're doing, uh, and then, and then sort of like bring people in. And as you said, humanize your experience of HEMA. I think that's, you know, that's a big thing. There was one thing I was going to ask you about, and then we'll probably have to wrap it up because I've kept you on way, way longer than I intended to. But um, I was in the gym when the gyms reopened and um, I came downstairs. I was finishing up my workout and I came downstairs and there was this guy across uh, the room from me at Dave's gym. Shout out to Dave's gym. Um, and uh, he's, he's looking at me and he's not looking at, you know, he's not looking off into space and I just happen to enter into that space or whatever, um, or, or just, you know, whatever. He's, he's locked eyes on me and he's, he's gazing at me kind of thing. So I'm just like, okay, cool. You know, I've been locked up and maybe a little bit paranoid, whatever. Anyway, I, I, I go, uh, I bend over, I pick up uh, some stuff out of my backpack, you know, I put my watch on and get my keys, whatever. I look up, he's a little bit closer <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you know, that's fine. Anyway, I go back to my backpack i take my hoodie out i put my hoodie on it's got um, it's my academy of steel hoodie so it's got the logo there and when i stand up he's right there in front of me and i'm like all right social distancing but yeah cool let's do this then and i don't know what he's after but um he's just like right there in front of me with this really intense look on his face and uh he goes are you from the academy of steel and i kind of like looked down at the logo on my chest and then looked at him and i'm like uh, yeah and he goes oh cool i follow you on instagram can i join right um, oh, wow. yeah which was cool it was like oh yeah okay thank god for that <laughs> you know? yeah. um, but i mean is that something that you've encountered out in the out in the real world yeah quite a lot <laughs> yeah i mean no it's and i don't say that in a, in a boastful way it's, it's, it's um and do you know what i actually like it so lucy my my wife uh, finds finds it quite embarrassing 
Uh, my daughter finds it quite embarrassing. <laughs> Um, but uh, but I'd be honest, I quite like it because it just shows to me that real people in the real world are actually watching my channel. It's not just some imaginary, you know, usernames and numbers on a screen. Um, and yeah, it's happened in the most weird places as well. So it happened in a, in a garden centre while we were looking at some guinea pigs. Uh, and um, it's happened in some more obvious places, obviously at events and, and um, uh, antique arms fairs where obviously I in antique stuff and but perhaps surprising to me given that the average age is quite old at most of these antique things and like sometimes people who i wouldn't have thought were youtube watchers are like oh i watch your videos on youtube they're very good oh cool um that's nice um and um uh yeah it's happened literally around the corner from my house as well <laughs> like it's really really yeah it's really weird but i think that's one thing that people forget is that youtube has such a vast um, viewership, you know, um, the number of people, I mean, if, if your video gets shared somewhere, it might get shared in the weirdest places. And, you know, so a lot of my videos have been memed and turned into GIFs and, and I've had, you know, shared in, on websites I wouldn't have expected them to be shared on. So, so sometimes people who see your videos weren't actually looking for them. They just kind of get thrust upon them. Um, so yeah, it's 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 strange, um, and I think ultimately, if it spreads the word of, of you know HEMA or the fact that it's okay to be interested in arms and armor, I mean, I, I remember some people when I was growing up being like, "Why are you so interested in weapons? Like, what weirdo? You know that kind of stuff." I think you know if you're a teenage kid, boy or girl, um, and you're interested in weapons, it's okay, guys. You know, you'll you'll be all right. <laughs> you're not. You don't have to, you know, take yourself to some institution. You're, you're fine, you know. Um, and, you know, the fact that I've had a lot of people, uh, teenagers mostly, I think, um, sort of say, you know, kind of like, oh, you really maybe think I should study history when I go to university or that I should, you know, that I've, I've really been reading, getting a lot more into history since I've been watching your channel. And um, a lot of people, I think, as who are already interested in history are maybe enlightened about new bits of it or they have their interest peaked in new aspects of it and i'm not going to lie i mean it certainly has some business advantages as well given that i sell antique swords and i make videos about antique swords you know so um some people who've never bought an antique sword before have come to me and said you know i really want to get into antique sword collecting so yeah great that wasn't the intention that wasn't why i started it but um, and then they go on to become collectors who buy swords from other people i know as well you know so um, it has all sorts of all sorts of benefits, and honestly, it doesn't really have many drawbacks. I mean, I've I've had done quite a lot of um, jobs over the years. I mean, for the longest time, I, I was um, a Whitehall civil servant, and I can categorically say that being a YouTuber is a more enjoyable job than that. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's helped me out a lot as well, actually, because uh, two of my students joined. Um, we opened the uh, Academy of Steel branch in Kofili for a month, and then we had to go into lockdown. Um, and then um, we had we managed to open again for a little bit during the the, the kind of um, reopening, I guess. Um, yeah. And two of the guys who joined joined uh, primarily because they watch your your channel. So thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's the other thing. I, I mean, I forgot to mention. It's been—it's really surprised me how many uh, people from clubs 
in other countries and have told me that as well. You know, one of my best friends is Scott Brown over in Florida. And I mean, he's had people turn up to his class when, back when he was in Texas as well and, and now in Florida who, you know, found out about it either through, and not just through my channel, of course, but through even people like, you know, Scalagrim and, and um, Shadowverse and like other big, bigger channels that aren't necessarily focused on HEMA, but they mention HEMA and they're interested in HEMA. So it's it benefits everyone. And I, actually, I should say on that, I should go on record and say, I know that some people within the HEMA community are really quite, um, it's quite sort of snarky about YouTube channels that make videos about HEMA when the person isn't really a HEMA person or they don't perceive that person to be a HEMA person. And I've always been of the opinion, I can understand why misinformation or things wrongly represented can annoy HEMA people because they feel that HEMA should be represented by HEMA people, which I think that I am. Um, but I've always viewed it as a bit more kind of big picture here. And it's like, come on, if you've got a channel with one and a half million subscribers or whatever, or like Jörg Sprague, who even refers to him occasionally on the Slingshot channel, he's got over two, I can't even remember how many millions of subscribers he's got. If you've got someone with that much reach, even mentioning HEMA, that HEMA's a thing, imagine like the advertising, you know, the free advertising HEMA's getting out of that. I mean, that's, you know, I was, I was about to say money can't buy that, but I, you probably could actually buy advertising. But, but, but you get my meaning. It's just kind yeah. of like, it's the most amazing level of free advertising. And moreover, you know, I think now that I've unfortunately earned money from advertising, you think about audiences and target audiences. Well, the, one of the major audiences of, of YouTube specifically are teenagers and Teenagers are literally your next students. Yeah, it's the most, it's the best targeted advertising you could possibly get because that is the age group that you want to be coming into your your clubs either now or in a few years. Um, so you know, I think it's I think it's great, um, and I think there's going to be a new generation of people who look at arms and armor and martial arts as not something massively weird or fringe like it frankly was when I was a kid. It was very, you know, the number of people I knew who practiced martial arts who were a 40-year-old adult was very, very slim. I knew one guy in the park who used to practice uh, with a Joe staff, I think it was, um, who probably did Aikido in hindsight. Uh, and, you know, I knew a couple of others, but it was very, very rare. And now it's just something that's everywhere, normalized. If someone wants to get involved with it, then they can easily find out how to, so. Yeah. Yeah, that, it is. It's awesome. Um, dude, this has been excellent. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. Normally, this is the, the, the formula is that I ask people where, where you know, I don't, I don't think there's much. Yeah, no, no, no. I get it. I get it. <laughs> Whoever's yeah. listening is definitely going to know. But just in case, because if they don't know about your Patreon. Yeah, cool. Okay. I, I don't like pimping the Patreon, but, um, but yeah, I'll mention it in passing. Um Yes, yeah, so of course people can find uh, videos from me and my normal sort of content on Scholar Gladiatoria channel on YouTube. Um, I've also got a couple of websites that you might find interesting if you're interested in this kind of stuff. There's Eastern Antique Arms, which is at antique-swords.co.uk, which I also put research articles up there as well. So if you want to buy antique swords, you can find them there, but also you can find articles and things to read, nice photographs. Um, and uh, yeah, and you can also find the Scholar Gladiatoria um, Facebook page as well. Um, 
and I do extra videos on Patreon as well if you're interested in that kind of thing but I've got loads of content up for free on YouTube so uh, go and check it out awesome thanks so much buddy no that's really good fun thanks for having me on yeah and, um, let's let's do this again sometime if you're interested in learning more about historical European martial arts, visit www.academyofsteel.com or shoot us over a question at info at academyofsteel.com. You can find us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.